0: and communities.
1: And my name is Latoya Devazan, and I'm the African American Community Archivist at the Austin History Center, and I work with African American um, <laughs> archives and with the African American community.
0: Um, just uh, in case you don't know, this session's gonna be recorded, so we do have an audience mic out, um, and so we ask if anyone has questions to speak into the mic, so, yeah, no, you're okay. Feel free to, yeah, you don't have to apologize. Yeah. <laughs> Oh.
1: No problem. Well, we still love you guys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so the community... Well first I want to ask a question by a show of hands. Is anyone familiar with community archives as a sort of a concept or model?
1: We knew you guys were going to raise your hand.
0: <laughs> I know. We know you. I know. We're kind of the lone, some of the lone archivists in, <laughs> at this conference. Um, so. We can talk a little bit about community archives. We can talk about what that means in the Austin History Center, which is a municipal archive. Um, We are, the community archives was sort of designed um, in order to represent under, or to represent the communities that don't really have a strong presence in archives historically. So uh, we have a Latino community archivist, African American community archivist, and an Asian American community archivist. Um, And so we all kind of work together to both collect, but also spend a lot of time doing community engagement um, and try to be embedded archivists within the community. Um, The Austin History History Center itself is the municipal archive. Mm -hmm. Um, We have all the city records, but we also kind of spend a lot of time uh, collecting organizational histories, um, community histories, family histories, those kinds of things. Uh, and then I think Latoya is gonna talk a little bit about community archives in general, give you a sense for those of you don't, who don't know.
1: So just by a show of hands, how many of you guys, I saw we have some archivists in the room, how many of you all work in a museum right now? Out of curiosity, okay. And how many librarians do we have in the room? Do we have any librarians? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true, that's true. So I just wanted to check and see. So when we say the term community archives, and just to let you guys know, we do want this to be a conversation. So we're going to be sharing our experiences. We want to hear from you. We don't have the um, end-all, be-all solution to all of the problems, but we do hope to offer you all some strategies and some solutions today. So when we say community archive, what does that word mean to you guys, community archives? Does anyone have, like, any, like, burning, yes, and oh, can you guys use the mic? I forgot, we're recording.
0: Yeah, I think of documents.
1: Documents? Pretty much.
2: Yeah,
1: awesome. Anyone else have any strong definitions of what a community archive means to them?
2: Mm, I think it's something kind of like a living place where there's people coming in and coming out. It's not not, um, static like what you think of a traditional archives.
1: Would be. We've got a
3: hand in the back, and we can pass the mic. Yeah. <clears throat> I like that. Definition. <laughs> that was an awesome. Definition. Hey. Um, so, community ar- archives to me would be where it's not a traditional way of collecting stuff. Um, it might be more present stuff as well as as older stuff. And um, maybe any type of material or documents that are meaningful to the community versus the institution.
1: Yeah, these are excellent, definitely excellent. So when we, when Amanda and I think about, oh, we have one more hand. Sure, we sure can. Can y'all hear me? Us better this way? Okay. No problem. So, when we talk, Amanda and I think about community archives, we look at it as a participatory archive where the community is actively engaged in the process of collecting, archiving their histories, and telling their stories. So, we work together with the community to be able to tell that story. So, when we look at history, one thing that happens with history, um, as we all know, our careers intersect with history, is that sometimes we're left with this burden of having one a one-sided narrative of an account of history. And we've seen that from a lot of our sessions to like the state of inclusion. And um, what was the name of the last session? I feel bad now. Uh, absent voices. Absent uh, voices, yes. Absent voices. And so with these different sessions, we've seen that there's a missing narrative. And how do we add those perspectives in and also do a better job of being inclusive into everyone's histories? And so that's one thing that we try to do with community archives is make sure that we're Telling everyone's story and just being inclusive in that process. So Amanda and I as community archivists are embedded within the community. And when we say embedded within the community, we are in addition to having traditional archival roles, we're actively engaged with the community and um, we go to events. Sometimes you'll see us at all kinds of like, you know, alternative events that you wouldn't expect to see, the Austin History Center, or the library. Yeah. Um, Those are the fun as ones. a member of the fun yeah. events. <laughs> like, you know, if it's the MLK festival, we might be there with a the pop-up, you know exhibit or banner, talking to the community about ways to collect their stories and share their stories and how to have them actively participate in that process.
0: Yeah, and I will say that one of the challenges of the community archive within a mainstream city archive is that we sort of, we have to adhere to the city archives policies, collection policies, um, whereas in an ideal world, a community archive would allow for a post custodial archiving where the community would be able to have ownership of the archive, um, whereas our institution is very big on collecting. So so a part of our job actually is teaching people how to preserve their histories. And then we spend, I personally spend a lot more time um, engaging before anyone feels uh, comfortable enough to donate to the History Center. Um, There's a lot of trust building that we do in our work, I would say. Um, We're outside of the office probably more than we are inside of it, um, In order, that, that, that's the only way that we can actually build these small archives. Um, they're a small percentage of our current city archive. Um, and the only way we're going to get more is if we meet the community where they're at.
1: And so that's one thing, definitely meeting the community where they are um, taking the archive into the street. Um, as a a way of speaking Um, because most of the time people don't when we go out into the community we realize that they don't know about the Austin History Center Mm -hmm. people don't know that we exist, um, that we have community archivists who are actively seeking and Mm -hmm. wanting to share their stories and have them participate in that process Mm -hmm. and so one thing is like Amanda said establishing that level of trust, having them get to know us, know more about us it's also difficult too because we're under the umbrella of the city government Mm -hmm. and so the city government also sets fees and different things, um, like different fees for pictures and items. So once the community gives us items, in turn, if your great-granddaughter comes, you know, like maybe 20 yeah, yeah, twenty years later to come and find that picture, then there is a fee attached to the picture. And so sometimes... To reproduce it, to reproduce not to it, look at it. To not to look at it, yeah. Right. To reproduce it. So sometimes that is a difficult process for us because we are tied to the city government. It makes the collecting process difficult because, um, you know, it kind of like... I guess mers that layer of trust a little bit. Yeah,
0: I think city government will always, yeah. there will always be that little, um, it's an obstacle yeah. uh, to explain to the community how we can actually benefit them mm-hmm. um, and not, I don't know. There are a lot of difficult things and being able to acknowledge that, yeah, we've been in, uh, complicit in a lot of the um, missteps and misfortunes and yeah. tragedies and traumas as, Um, is a really important part of our work. And also acknowledging our own positionality within the community. So obviously I am light-skinned, white passing, I'm mixed race, so a lot of these things I have to kind of be really transparent about when I'm talking to different uh, Latino communities.
1: And we're also um, kind of tutored, I guess, as the subject experts on um, Latinx and African-American history in Austin and Travis County. So because of that, um, sometimes we do get a little pushback from the community. Amanda, nor Amanda, nor are like we're from, we're not from Austin. So we do get that pushback that we're not members of this community. I'm a black woman, but I definitely don't represent every black person in Travis County. And there's the burden that comes with that um, of trying to represent, number one, a community that I'm not from, although I do share membership with, right. and that makes it a little bit difficult for us too. In addition to um, another challenge with our jobs is that the Latinx population is 40% here in the mm-hmm. city of Austin. Um, Austin also has the honor of being one of the fastest growing cities in America, but it also has the fastest shrinking African American population. I've been in Austin for three years, and since I've been here, the, pop, the population from the African American community was well, 12% and now it's 6%. So it's um, declining at a rapid rate. Yeah. And that makes my d- job extra difficult because I'm out trying to collect history, but the communities are dispersing and disappearing. Okay. And because we work at a local history center, we're looking at Austin and Travis County only with those narratives. And so as African Americans move to neighboring counties, those histories get lost, Mm -hmm. you know, and that collective memory gets lost as well. So that's the most difficult part of my job. And also the Asian American community here is the fastest growing. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's also a different layer to our jobs, and also with our Asian American community archivists, it's very difficult working with so many different communities within the Asian American community, so many different languages, religions, and different cultural celebrations, so that's also a difficult part. And also with our titles, Amanda and I, um, we're talking about maybe a title changes, okay. because um, we're definitely trying to use Latinx now because it's gender neutral for the Latino community. Mm-hmm. and with the African-American community, we, or while we're losing African-Americans, we're also gaining black immigrant populations here. And so maybe my job titles should to change so that black people who are moving to Austin know that I still am a resource for them because mm-hmm. their histories here in this area are still important. So that's definitely something to look at as we're kind of going through.
0: Yeah, I do, I do like Latinx. I know I didn't introduce myself that way, but it is more gender inclusive and I think there is a shift Especially academically to start using that term so we'll see um, when I communicate with different communities they uh, especially older um, Latino communities they prefer to be addressed by their uh, country of origin so that's just my experience but um, I will I guess a successful part about we can acknowledge that the community archivist program is actually a successful yeah. uh, model at least to introduce to a city archive um, I think it's pretty unique in the country. A lot of community archives, I think, are exist on their own and don't mm-hmm. necessarily get government funding, so um, we are lucky that way. At the same time, of course, there's a lot of challenges with that, like I mentioned. Um, but I will say it was really successful. It was introduced in the year 2000. Uh, started with the African-American Community Archivist and slowly added other archivists on board to work <laughs> with different communities. Um, and So that's a success in itself. Uh, The challenge, I think, with that is that we become very segmented in who we're expected to work with um, versus other archivists on staff. Um, We're not exactly embedded in the culture of the organization, so um, I think that's something that needs to uh, improve as the years go on and hopefully with more awareness, cultural sensitivity, training, and... um, implicit bias training that we talked about (laughs) earlier. Uh, I think those things will eventually come, but I would like to recognize that the Community Archivist Program is a a model that I hope other city archives will start adopting.
1: Another um, gap that we do have, you know, our our program, excuse me, is a success, but one gap we have is that we do have Middle Eastern communities who are coming to Austin. We have um, LGBTQ communities that are coming to Austin. They intersect all of our different collecting aspects and so we have a lot of different communities that are coming and so we um, as one person it's very difficult I can tell you and um, Susan's our supervisor so she can oh, attest yeah, to this I, <laughs> Call do a her lot, I do a lot of outreach and um, for Black History Month sometimes the amount of programs that I do by myself are, is like ridiculous it's really like just insane the schedule sometimes that I keep and there's a um, difficulty with wanting to be all that you can be to the community and knowing that you're there and also mm-hmm. kind of practicing the opportunity that you can't be everywhere at one time. Mm-hmm. You know, because if you're collecting, you're the only person actively collecting an African-American history for Travis County it becomes difficult and that's definitely where that participatory community archive comes in handy because every time we do presentations, we always tell the community, you guys can actively share and um, contribute to your own stories and so that's one thing that we always want to stress.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought of something and I wanted to... Bring it up, but I guess we can talk a little bit about some more successes or how we address like certain challenges. Um, we do a lot of we practice a lot of intersectional intersectionality, intersectionality um, especially I think as some of the younger uh, archivists in these positions. Um, I will I'll backtrack a little bit um, prior to us being on staff. Mm-hmm. Um, the position was called community liaisons, so it wasn't necessarily professionalized. Um, They did just the same amount of work, if Mm -hmm. not more, and, Mm -hmm. you know, but we actually came on board as archivists, we're now certified archivists, so Mm -hmm. I think that helps with this push for inclusivity. Um, So I think that was also like a successful initiative um, that the Austin History Center sort of uh, pushed for. And I would also say, um, aside from intersectionality, what other kinds of things do we do Mm -hmm. to sort of work together well?
1: Well, we also plan a lot of programs together because we like to share commonalities with our communities. So one thing we, um, like one program that we had recently was a women's history program that was really awesome. And we included women from all different intersections. We have queer women, women of color, different groups to go ahead and talk about women's history in Austin and their contributions to pushing that will mm-hmm. in Austin and uh, instituting change. And it was a really awesome program. It was well attended. And we had a very diverse audience who mm-hmm. showed up to the program, people we've never seen um, come to the History Center. Yeah. And that was really exciting to be able to have that happen. Mm-hmm. I was so excited about that.
0: Yeah, and speaking to that, we do have an exhibit up for another week. Yes. <laughs> um, that opened in February, but it was about different refugee experiences in Austin. So it wasn't just about one community that we were focusing on. We were really trying to make those connections. Um, Hard to do, but uh, and it also made us realize the gap in our collections. We didn't go out and do active collecting for the exhibit process. Um, we used what we had, and so that was a challenge in itself, um, but we were able to tell a, a kind of narrative uh, with it, but we realized that we couldn't tell a complete story because of the collecting that had been done before. Um, wasn't you know it wasn't telling the whole complete story, and I don't think like we'll ever be able to do that. But it is something that we continually strive for. I think
1: and that was one thing too with the refugee exhibit. Amanda can definitely speak more into this, but. Um, sometimes having that level of trust with immigrant communities now, especially with documentation and the worry about telling that story and what are we gonna do with the information Mm -hmm. because we still work for, even though we're a city, we work for the government too, we're city government. And so people are always worried about having that trail sometimes or like how much to tell us or like what they should tell or what they shouldn't. So that's a big burden um, of this position with trying to make sure that we're actively collecting those stories.
0: And in Texas, um, Austin is seen as sort of a haven for different refugee communities um, and having, that connection to the Austin History Center hasn't quite happened. We've tried, um, but there's a lot more work to be done there. So that's definitely a huge section and segment of um, the demographics here that we just haven't been able to fully engage.
1: So one thing we wanted to do was open up the questions to the floor to see, um, those are just some of our successes. For those of you all who are working with community archives, or you have these programs at your institutions, do you all want to share about some of the things that are working for you guys or things that aren't working or challenges that you all may have. We want to open that up. Where or are some, even, um, yeah, oh. Sorry. I was also going to say, <laughs>
0: even while you're here, what you're hoping to learn, because yeah. I think we have a lot to speak to, just Definitely. don't know where which direction to take it in immediately.
1: So we've got some hands up here. To
3: uh, oh, we're going to pass. Oh, the, yeah, oh I'm pass sorry. Oh, no, no, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, I work in a local history organization that focuses on one town, city, um, like you all. Um, And I I sympathize with, we have a very historic African American community that we were very successful in building ties with back in the 90s. We did this sort of groundbreaking exhibition and we have this really fantastic collection of that community and their presence in our town dates back to as early as there were white people in the community and we we were really proud to highlight that. but the historic neighborhood where they live um, now is almost exclusively a Latino neighborhood um, and demography wise, um, that the Latino community uh, in our town now eclipses the African-American community. And yet it seems like historically, everyone still just really pushes the African-American history narrative, um, which is great and we love, but um, we sort of feel like We need to tell that story alongside other stories of diversity in the community. Um, There's a lot of political tension between the African American community and the Latino community, because they've sort of been moving into these spaces that were historically where the African American community lived. Um, So we're trying to collect the Latino stories now. Um, We don't have anything in our archives related to that. And my real question is, um, one of the challenges we've been facing is by and large the people um, in our town who come from Latin America are undocumented. Um, and so it's very hard to build trust with them, especially uh, within the last six months. Um, about um, you know, we can't promise any sort of legal protection for stories that they give us. You know, anything that we have in our archives could be subpoenaed if you know if they if ICE came and picked them up um, and they gave us an oral history. Um, that's that's something that could be used against them. Um, so what types of strategies do you use to build trust with a community that is as vulnerable as an undocumented population?
0: I will say truthfully and honestly, we haven't, we haven't had as many of those stories. Um, what we do have, we've been able to engage people who came to Texas or the country as undocumented and has since um, gained citizenship, and they're able to kind of talk about their experiences that way. Um, other things that we have done we've had uh, we haven't had a formal partnership but we've done programs with uh, multicultural coalitions uh, refugee coalitions and so kind of like having them bring us in um, to slowly get our like acquainted with these different communities that we don't necessarily have like a solid foundation with um, I don't I will be honest. Like I have an ethical issue with it too. I don't necessarily come out and ask people for those kinds of um, that kind of documentation because I know how like scary and um, it's just it's so unstable right now. So it's really hard to kind of expect people to offer it up. That's sort of the idea behind the refugee exhibit that we did because to kind of create this awareness that we understand what's happening and so hope we're trying to hope to draw different audiences in who might be interested in looking at that exhibit and then kind of having exposure to the Austin History Center that way.
1: And to follow up with your question about getting the groups to work together, one thing that Amanda and I do is we co-present because so much of the history intersects and sometimes the two groups don't always talk to each other. Yeah. And so, luckily, Amanda and I share an office. Yes. Um, people say that we share sentences. Yes. Yeah, so we, um, We're told that quite it's a awesome. bit. Yeah, so I feel like we're sisters from another mister. But, um, awesome. but that's one way that we um, try to com- combat that is um, to kind of get people in the room together and have these mm-hmm. conversations. And so one way we do that um, is a presentation on housing and gentrification mm-hmm. and the city of Austin's role in displacing both African-American and Latino communities here mm-hmm. in Austin. And so we um, co present, and it's actually been a successful presentation. Yeah. We've mm-hmm. been requested to do that quite a bit yeah. lately. And so that's one way that we kind of look at what do you all have in common? What do we have in common? And how can we bridge these um, gaps and tell these stories? And then when you're in a room together like this, sometimes people will say, Oh, my mother, that happened to me, or that happened to me. And then you kind of like, you know, can cry and hug, hug it out at the end. Um, and always, too, I think food is always a great mm-hmm. um, thing to bring and together. <laughs> yes, I'm from New Orleans, so I always feel like a pot of gumbo will.
4: Save the world. Let <laughs> me have another hand up. i oh, for you. I know you're just having okay, thought about it. <laughs> um, I just had a thought about that, too. Um, there's um, the, Cleve- the Cleveland Archive of Police Violence oh, yeah. is an online digital archive. And they, I believe you can um, maybe only um, submit things to it anonymously. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that might be a workaround where you can be like, well, we don't have that information, so we have the story, but we can't tell you who or where or when, or yeah. um, that, I don't know, might be some kind of yeah. way to go if, about it.
0: you wanna, if you haven't, um, you should go to the University of Texas Human Rights Initiative website. They, do, they actively practice post-custodial archiving, and I think that's one solution to really sensitive and vulnerable community collection practices.
2: So I feel your pain, um, so I'm building the Latino and Asian collection for the Indiana Historical Society. So it's a statewide effort, so you're lucky that you're narrowed down to a county. Um, um, but my method, I, I do, and I do do presentations. You know, my boss tells me, you know, do what you can, don't overextend yourself. Um, in terms of, I guess with the, uh, you know, with the Latino or Latinx community, um, I've had, with the president administration, I've had... Um, uh, a harder reach um, into the migrant community. Um, so I've been able to get w- one um, oral history completed pre, and, and they've since become citizens, um, pre-administration, how we how we kind of throw that term around. Um, but the ways that we, we kind of do protect them, I say, you know, these oral histories are going to be on file, but um, I interviewed somebody from uh, Laos, and they were part of the communist government over there before they escaped to the United States. Um, so, with that, and they still have family back in their home country, so what we did was we offer restricted um, interviews. So, for as many years, um, a minimum of, I don't know, 25, 50, uh, average of 72 years. Um, so, so, I've been able to do that, but unfortunately, you know, that won't be available hopefully, maybe my lifetime, uh, but hopefully for their grandchildren. Um, so I'm the only one that knows what the content of the interview, I have to do the transcription, um, and it, it, it stays with me. So that's one way we kind of do, we offer protection to people, uh, people who want to share their stories and know the importance of sharing their stories, but you know worry about their own safety and safety of others. But my, my overall question for you is, how do you manage the burnout? Because you know, it's, you two are, are the sole people do, doing the work. You are the representation for um, your community archive. You know, how do you how do you manage that? And then how do you, you know, museums, archives, I feel like sometimes are not always stable employment environments. And so, you know, you, we, we all have to understand that we will transition to something else. Um, so how do you also, you know maintain that relationship because it's kind of like starting a, a conversation with a community once that conversation that dialogue ends it ends with that organization so how are you um, providing some sustainability to your community archive so it's those two questions
1: well I will start with the self-care um so happy hours are great um getting together um also cutting off um Saying no sometimes, I ha- hate to say that, but um, definitely saying no. Sometimes you can't be everywhere and you can't be all things to all people. And not feeling guilty about it. And not it. feeling guilty. Um, and I, I'm, I struggle with that, I still do, because Amanda was like, I'm like, Amanda, I know I want to say yes, but I had like 10 programs that day. Um, yeah. And so just making sure that you say no um, is definitely, and also kind of giving yourself a little bit of space to breathe. Sometimes you can't do everything and that's okay. And I also always remind my community that Black History, you can celebrate that all year round. Like you don't have to just like co op me in February. Like you can spread me out like throughout the year. And so I always say, you, beyond Juneteenth and Black History Month, I'm still here. Like I'm here 365. So you can call me other months of the year. And that's the way that I kind of get around um, feeling that burnout. And with sustainability, Amanda, you want to take that? Yeah, it?
0: I want to say one more thing about um, the emotional labor that comes with this, like the very personal as political kind of relationship that we have with. Um, archives and our communities that we work with and, and live in. Um, I think having mentors is something that I've, that's really helped me. Um, some of my mentors aren't necessarily arch- archivists, they're um, uh, in other organizations, but they have dealt with similar issues, both like on an organizational level, but also with communities that they struggle to work with um, or successfully work with, but still carry that emotional uh, Burn sometimes. Um, sustainability, so we are still dealing with that to a degree from our predecessors who uh, had a relationship with certain individuals, uh, certain organizations who struggled with trying to open up to us. Um, so we see the repercussions of that. Mm-hmm. So I think, one, trying to embed it into the culture of how, like having these partnerships that are longstanding will help with that, Um, also really making connections to leaders in our communities who will be able to be advocates for the kind of work that we do, who understand it, and who can be advocates for it in the future, because you're right, um, we don't have necessarily anywhere to move up in the organization that we're at now, so, um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard because of the um, professional development involved with that, but also, like, there's not a, what is the word that I'm looking for? Uh, yes thank you you. there's on the ladder
1: and also with our predecessors the great thing about um us i guess working for the city of austin is that they're still around Mm -hmm. so we can actually still call them and talk to them they're great um and also they can say i was able to reach this person i wasn't able to reach that person and so it was nice to kind of have a lifeline that we could reach out to and so Mm -hmm. that also helps with the sustainability of the communities and like amanda said having different groups advocate for you Um, Even though we we can't be everything in our community, I don't represent definitely all black people, but having those connections, like I'm from New Orleans, and so I have a Catholic upbringing. So there's a Catholic church in Austin. So in Louisiana, it's like one degree of separation. And so I use that as a way to kind of connect with the community here. And now I'm receiving all sorts of things from that church, which whose history we didn't have a whole lot of information on. And now they're just sending me packages and coming in to meet with me, and I'm getting all sorts of information about this community that we didn't have previously. Do we have any more um, questions? All right, so now we're gonna talk about the good stuff. And so we're gonna talk about strategies um, for um, empowering our communities. So one strategy that we use is um, having the community um, help us create programs and working with different organizations and so by that we go out into um, each um, so we work like we say we work for the city of Austin and so we're at the Austin History Center but each of our communities has a heritage center as well so for me it's the Carver Museum for Amanda we have the MAC and Mexicarte Mm -hmm. different organizations and then um, for our Asian American Community Archivists, there's also the um, Asian American Resource Center the AARC and so what we do sometimes is have these collaborative partnerships with those organizations and smaller organizations, those partnerships are important. And that's a way that we are able to get the communities to tell their story and empower them and help them shape their own narratives. We also have the community help us with vocabulary, with how they would like to be described. Mm -hmm. We ask first before we assume. And I think that's an important thing. In the last session we um, went to, we saw that two of the panelists, one person described the Native American community as Native American, the other one said American Indian. So it was just different looking at the terminology. So for us, we kind of ask first and then use that, use their input to describe the records. So it's definitely a partnership with the community.
0: Yeah, and I will say that language is so important. Yeah. Um, so I'm constantly trying to check myself. Um, I know Latinx works with a lot of the university students. Um, Works with a lot of younger people, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily work with all uh, Latino groups. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mexican American heritage in Austin is really, really strong. The Tejano heritage, so those are the kinds of things mm-hmm. that people feel very, very strongly about their identity. Um, so that's a challenge, is also like <laughs> trying to be inclusive of all of that. But I think an approach is to at least be aware. Um, so I don't know
1: we also go into the classroom quite a bit so i work with students of all ages i work with i love kids which is an odd trait for an archivist um because you know usually like don't come in and touch our stuff but um i like to get out and work with children and i try to make reproductions and get them excited about history because the way i look at it we're not going to live forever so someone has to carry on this torch Speaking of sustainability, it's sustainability of our profession, right? So um, i definitely like to get out and get into the schools. Um, Now we have a a relationship with different teachers, and so I get the schools to call me now, and I um, go out and co-teach. I also teach university classes, and I try to make it fun. Uh, One thing about our profession is a lot of people don't like people. We have a profession of introverts, (laughs) but we can't just work inside with our stuff all day. Um, If we don't get out of the office, people won't come in to look at the stuff, and so then what's the point of what we're doing? And So that's one of the biggest things is that, making sure that we um, are open and transparent. And also, I like to take people behind the scenes for tours. One thing with the community, with establishing trust, um, people aren't prepared for the emotional response. People cry, and like, I mean, you spend a lot of time hugging. people and like you know soothing them I'm giving you my entire life and you're putting it in this box you know this is this is me this is my family's story I'm trusting you with this information it's a very emotional experience to have that relationship with someone and so just letting people see what happens so I show people this is like the process, this is what we do with the photographs, this is where they go, this is how it could be used, these are the things that we do. And sometimes a part of that too is also with community archives, you don't always get to take original documents. Right. Sometimes it's about making a use copy and giving the original back to the community or vice versa, us taking the original, since we're in archive and then making them a nice archival copy to be able to have that partnership. And it's, that's one of the most
0: difficult parts about the job definitely, you know? Yeah. Definitely. Um, people parting with their things and also um, even trying, at least for me, mm-hmm. trying to explain why what they have is important mm-hmm. uh, and why we do want it. because I get that question a lot, like, why do you want this information? Because maybe they don't want to they're worried about how we're going to use it, but mm-hmm. also like it's just a photo. like it's not important. Like yes, it is. It's part of this like narrative that mm-hmm. we would never know about. Did any of you go to Rainy Street while you were here? Yeah, Yeah. okay. So that, um, really cute, right? Bungalows and stuff um, Mm -hmm. turned into bars. Well, that was a very historically Mexican neighborhood, like working class. um, Mexican American Cultural Center is built right across the street from there. The idea was that it was gonna be embedded in the community, but by the time that was built, the community was already forced to be out of that area. They couldn't pay the property taxes. Uh, zoning things changed, um, so some of those are original houses, totally gutted. But there's pain there because you know they used to, maybe they grew up there. They their family. I have so many people tell me stories about the mm-hmm. guy who like baked bread on the corner, and you could smell the bread at like five in the morning. Um, so things like that. And so people don't think it's important, but once we get talking, I'm like, well, who's going to know this? Like down the line. Um, Not that I have to explain why history is important to anybody here, but I feel like that's part of our job a lot too, is just Mm -hmm. kind of explaining why uh, we want these stories or why we need them.
1: And that's my favorite part about our job is um, seeing light bulbs click with people, realizing the value of our histories, our voices, our stories. Seeing children who were maybe ashamed, it's um, difficult sometimes when I go in to do a black history presentation, and there might be one black kid in the class. Mm -hmm. This happens to me quite a bit, especially Mm -hmm. in Austin, the population is declining. So I may go in to do a black history presentation, but the room room of children may be 98% you know, Mm -hmm. Latinx and 2% African-American. So making that history relatable and also making that child feel a sense of pride in their history and culture is, to me, an invaluable thing. And that's like my favorite part about our job is just making sure that people know their perspectives are heard, that their histories are being included, and that our voices are important, you know, to that story. Do any of you guys have any success stories about what's working well with where you all are? Any yeses? Yeah. Yes.
2: um so in terms of getting some stuff um like photos and documents so when I do the oral histories I you know in my welcome letter after I've established a relationship and agreed on a time and a place is you know you know bring these like here suggested items to bring with you to um help jog your memory help to um, tell a clearer picture of your story and usually at the end I ask you know can we scan them so we do we do we have a digital collection um, and in hopes of building that relationship and look give those give us those items later on um, but I have been and I, I've done the tour you know come look at the stacks, look at our conservation apartment, and that actually yielded a five hundred photo piece collection last week so they work um, so and this has been a, a relationship that I've been cultivating for about a year so um it paid off and I didn't know they had this stuff so um so, yeah, so, I mean, just kind of, like, you know, bringing that stuff. And then, you know, they do know that with a digital scan, you know, in terms of the credit line, you know, I say, we you know, we protect the image for you, but we actually get the image out there so people know more about, you know, your, the community and your family. So those are some of the things that have worked well That's for me. Awesome. It looks like y'all are doing a really
1: great job there. Does anyone else have any success stories or anything that you'd like to share?
0: I keep going back to that sustainability question, and I think... Even though um, working with little kids is kind of a challenge mm-hmm. of mine, uh, there
1: was. <laughs> I love documentaries like
0: that. She like spearheaded a really cool summer camp kind of, and it's something that the History Center has never done before. Never yeah. really invites kids or youth to come into that mm-hmm. space, um, and I think really exposing uh, young people to the archive is the only way that like we're really going to stay relevant. Um, and I think there's been a lot of resistance to it, but even I've sort of stepped, I've gotten comfortable with a lot of kids of different ages, um, and we end up going into a lot of, I think you already said this, right, Mm -hmm. classroom presentations, just to just explain what archives are, and then invite small groups to the archive um, so that we can kind of show them what we actually do. Uh, (laughs) Another
1: thing is just because the program, so one thing about the Community Archivist Program, it's a successful model, but us being hired is not like the solution to everything yeah so that's the most difficult part is that just having amanda and i there working with these histories and these collections is not like yay we're doing the best job we still struggle with a lot of different like you know issues with within our communities um sometimes we get pushback um from certain groups like we were teaching and someone said oh these are the experts on the histories and they got up and they were like you're not experts yeah so we had a co presentation so just dealing with things like that and um having people really um understand the value of what we're trying to do, but it's just very difficult. Um, it's a difficult road to toe. And also, too, um, again, we're sitting at the table, but also just because we're sitting at the table doesn't mean that um, the points of view are always heard. Yeah. And so that's another thing is active listening with community archives. Are we actively listening to these communities when we're looking at their histories? Or are we, um, can we put ourselves, can we humble ourselves to listen to these stories? And um, what the prisoner said earlier, Megan, she said um, that sometimes admitting that we're wrong, not being defensive. Mm -hmm. People come to us all the time and go, oh, the Austin History Center, I'm gonna take my materials to the Cultural Center, I don't wanna take my materials to you Mm -hmm. guys. And so sometimes we um, find ourselves competing with the Cultural Centers quite a bit, when we should be working more collaboratively together Mm -hmm. because people, Feel like the cultural center is the more important place to bring the materials instead of bringing them to us. They don't want to bring them to us so um, that's something that we deal with too. And also one thing that we try too is we're not always the right place for every item mm-hmm. and so sometimes if even if I can't take the items I always try to find another place for people to bring the items to and that also establishes trust too. And also, if you get one person to trust you, um, usually most people trust you. I have a really great colleague, I'm not gonna say her name since we're being recorded, but she's awesome. And if you're locally based, just let me know and I'll hook you up with her. But she, I call her like the, um, I guess like the telephone line of Austin because she was able, m- making a connection with her was able to gain, help me gain trust with other organizations within the community. And because of her, I was able to just meet so many other connections and enrich our collections so well. And um, also getting volunteers from the community is important as well. Yes, and we, where's the mic? You want to pass it back, okay. Oh, maybe right behind you.
5: That's
1: like a tiny little, yeah, it's hard to click on. <laughs> I can comment, oh, you got it. Thank
3: you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I just had a question based on what you were saying with um, there being these sort of cult- cultural specific hubs in addition to the Austin History Center. It's very similar to, um, the emergence, just within the last year, of sort of an African American history cultural association, again with the kind of anxiety of the departure of the African American population, this emergence of um, a refocusing on that history. Um, so, what strategies do you use to to work together and to not, you know, not compete, but also, you know, try not to spread out the, you know, I I feel like it's. It's easier if everything is in one place, Um, but then it's also important to, to portray your organization as a place that respects that narrative, even though it's not the only narrative.
1: So with the African-American collections at the History Center, I can definitely speak to this. So we have um, so many different groups competing for 6% of the population. And it's like this smackdown. Like on a Saturday night, you'll have like this cultural program and that cultural program. And it's like, why aren't we working together? And so you have all of these different groups competing for such a small piece of the pie. And so one thing I've tried to do since I've been here is really try to get us to work together more. So we'll have collaborative partnerships. There are certain resources that we have at the History Center that... Um, a group like maybe the Sixth Square District, which is the African-American Cultural Heritage District here, they tend to have more money than I do. We have a very, like, shoestring budget. Um, We can tell you guys after the recording how much it really is. And I want y'all to be amazed at what we are able to accomplish with that. But so we partner that way, like, where we may have the content if you want to do an exhibit, but they might have money to be able to put resources into doing like a series of programming that can involve the community and involve elders from the community who might be able to tell different stories. So that's one way that we definitely work together. Um, and part of that is sitting at the table and also knowing our strengths and weaknesses. The history center is tiny. I don't know if you guys want a repository tour, but we're like this big. And so we don't have a lot of space to take in new items. So we're waiting to be expanded right now. So we can take, the Carver is a better place to bring anything that's large or three dimensional. Like if you have an object, we really don't have room for it. If you saw like how much space we have for new collections, you'd be like, really? Wow, oh my gosh. So we have collections on hold throughout the city. We're not gonna tell other people where they are though, in case y'all are interested. But, um, (laughs) but, um, But that's one of the things that we're dealing with. And so we're a better place for maybe papers and photographs. So just knowing your strengths and weaknesses. That's another way that we were
0: able to do that. Yeah. Was, I think in the world of archives, we're considered a medium-sized organization, just <laughs> so we are not, we don't have like one room. Yeah. Um, but also I'll say the cultural centers tend to have more space for exhibits, um, for performance, more like meeting space. Um, they just have more space. So there are much better places to have, to be able to show some of our items like in a more, um, I don't know, like in a creative way, because they have the space to work with. So we tend to do things like that, like provide Mm -hmm. the actual photos or whatever, Mm -hmm. and they can display them.
1: And also giving people room to have, um, one thing where Amanda and I are also a part of an initiative with the city of Austin, working with culture and learning right now on a strategic outcome team. So we're kind of taking our knowledge base about archives and culture and learning and helping to shape policy for the city of Austin. So that's kind of a cool way that we're able to help assist the communities that we work with. And so one thing that we're trying to do is just um, empower the communities to be able to share that um, history with us and have a free space that they can be able to have exhibits and use our space. Use they can use our space because that's a, a issue with the creative community right now here. They don't we don't have a whole lot of spaces available in Austin right now affordable for space, affordable yeah. spaces for the people um, to be able to display their artwork, but they can do it at the History Center and be able to tell their story and have a program in our space. And so that's one way that we try to facilitate collaboration between the community. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? None of that. Okay. A yes. Where's the mic? Okay, I'm gonna pass. <laughs>
6: I can bring, oh, you got it, So I, uh, I just wanted to touch on two things you just said in terms of trust and space and ask you how you handle deaccessioning um, if your space is so small and how you handle with that with community trust given that you've been tasked by the community with the protection of these objects or these papers. Um, and so what happens when you decide either this never should have been brought into our collections in the first place um, or that you need to get rid of it to, to do other things that are more close to your mission as your mission adapts and changes.
0: Um, yeah, um, often I do have that conversation with people before. If if I'm the one who receives the items, I try to be really, really um, transparent about that. Like if I just wanna use it for an exhibit and we don't have the space to store it, I just try to like be really honest with them. But, more often than not, we've had a lot of stuff just uh, laying around without deeds of gift, um, and so tracking the own original owner is really, really difficult, especially like, if, one, we need to know the kinds of rights that they want to give up, um, and also, and if it's not part of our uh, collection policy, um, if it doesn't fit into that, then trying to track them down can be a really difficult thing. Um, I will say that those, we have a lot of work to do with that because at that point, trust is already, like we've already breached that trust by not actually being able to follow up with them. So um, honestly, I try to, I spent a lot of time talking to my predecessor or trying to (laughs) talk to my predecessor to get her to like get me that information. Um, And if she doesn't have it, we have the contact information for her predecessor. So it's always like, there's a lot of back and forth. really trying to find out the origin of how this all got started, where this came, where these, I have a box of like old photographs that are totally unmarked. Like they're just sitting there in my office space and they've been there for like three years and I don't know who they belong to, where they came from. And it's really frustrating. Um, So that's something, yeah, that I, I, every so often I'm like, oh, I'll try calling her again to see if she remembered like who donated these. I don't know, you kind of have, you've had similar things.
1: Yes, so I also use um, my contact, um, who I'll leave anonymous, but she's great about helping me find people. So I've been successful in that I've been able to contact everyone. I do have a rather large collection sitting right now that we have duplicates of. Mm -hmm. And so we don't necessarily, we already have every single, like, item, so we don't need these extras. And it's like several boxes. And like I said, we're spatially challenged. So I did contact, the customer and I went ahead and I'm, I'm going to mail the items to her because we need, the, we need the space. So that's one way that I've been able to do that. Um, and there's a couple things that I have not been able to contact anyone. So I try to find a home, like an orphan home. Sometimes on a listserv you'll see me like, does anybody want these items because they don't belong to that count? God? That's usually another way because I hate to throw them away. And I guess that's um, like yeah, the, them the hoarder yeah. in me, yes. I don't, I'll never throw anything away, I always try to find an alternative home for it. And usually I call my colleagues to try to find someone who has an opportunity for that. Does anyone else have issues saying no? I know I was on a programming committee and that was an issue that we talked about earlier. There was a workshop about the art of saying no. Does anyone find that easy or hard? Usually I'm pretty like I can't take this. If people try to give me things that we can't take, I just say no.
0: Yeah. That <laughs> I feel like really ethically strong about because I wouldn't want to take anyone's materials that they are like willing to give me without it actually fitting our mission and then it just like sitting there forever. Um, even though like maybe they, this is their way of kind of bridging that, that divide between us and they're like, why don't you've been asking for things? Why aren't you just taking these things now? Um, So I do try to like be really transparent about that um, just to avoid those kinds of situations. Dupes, I always give back. I kind of, I think we go the extra mile, not that our processing archivist doesn't, she's amazing, you know, Um, but we tend to kind of go out of our way. Like we'll go hand deliver things to people um, if we can uh mail things just to kind of like foster that relationship a little more
1: yeah i know we make a lot of house calls i personally drop things off to people like i'll come find you sometimes we'll drive an hour if we have to to bring you the items if we can't take them but it's about not breaking that trust with the community because we've already established this relationship and if we sever that tie you may never trust us again it takes the smallest the smallest smallest thing thing.
0: yeah like not calling back when you say you're going to call back or things like
1: that and i'm like I recently was yelled at by an 85 year old woman, very forcefully. It was a great conversation, but we're like we have a great relationship. But people do get upset if you don't call them back or don't get a chance to like meet with them, um, because she had items that didn't fit the collection, and so she, I didn't realize she had a hearing difficulty, so we had to say no. But I had to actually go in person and talk to her because she couldn't hear me over the phone. So it was kind of like a, we had an like you know uh, it was kind of an awkward situation, but it worked out. We we like each other. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> And we actually wanted to open up the floor to you guys. We wanted to really talk about community archives and participatory archiving and see what strategies um, you all, what, we have we not covered that you guys would like to talk about or some questions that people have that they would like to ask us that we haven't covered.
0: And it can be even broader than that too if you want to talk, like I know the theme of this, Conference was supposed, or in part, was diversity and inclusivity, and what that means to you. And I think we start these conversations, and they are super important. Mm -hmm. But um, I just feel like with every session that we do, that we should really kind of hold on to that. And if you guys want to continue a certain conversation that you had in another um, session, you can bring it up here too. No. Oh, sorry. Yes.
3: So I had just a quick question. Um, I work in field services, so I work with a lot of small communities throughout our state, but one of the things that a lot of them face is that they only have one archivist. So do you have any pointers of kind of how to build that relationship or that trust with a new community if, let's say, you're asking a straight white woman to go out and collect the community history of gay men in her area? Like, things like that, when you don't have someone who is so immediately a connection with the community. Do you have any pointers for building that trust and starting that out when they're seen as an outsider?
1: I definitely can speak to that. That happens quite a bit. Um, Right now we have this interesting issue, I guess, of like the African American Cultural Heritage District being in an area that is no longer African American like you were speaking about earlier with the neighborhood changing. And so there is some pushback from that. So my biggest thing is definitely active listening. And um, one thing I've noticed, especially with the gentrification and the stories that we're collecting in Austin right now, is that sometimes when we go into communities that we're not a part of, we go in with this mission of speaking to, speaking for, or having an idea of what they should do, how things should happen. Because we spend a lot of time talking to, talking about communities, but not listening to. And so that's the, to me, that's the biggest thing. And kind of humbling yourself. I'm um, asking them, what would you all like? This is my job. This is what I do. What would you like to see? And I know I definitely employed that approach, even though I'm a black woman when I approach the African American community here, because I'm not from Austin, mm-hmm. and the community here is very close knit, and they like Austinites. So that was a very difficult, uh, you know, issue for me. I have a Louisiana accent. I sound like I'm from Louisiana. So it was just difficult trying to embed myself in that community, and that's something I definitely. Um, what it suggests is listening.
0: Also connecting with volunteers who do have a stake in that community, I think is really important. That's also helped me um yeah, absolutely, because I can't I'm not the best person to talk to certain communities sometimes and so I do rely on like volunteer help um other community organizations that have people uh already a part of them that do that kind of work who aren't necessarily archivists maybe, but they can facilitate that process.
1: And I'm happy Amanda mentioned that because we do have Native American. We have a Native. So we have different resource guides for different groups, and we have a Native American resource guide. And it's a tad. Our collections for Native Americans are really offensive. Um, Like the Comanches are just seen as these like awful people with our collections. And so um, we were. I was approached by a Native. person who would like to be a volunteer, and so that's one thing I would like to work on, even though it's not part of my technical collecting scope, but it's something that's been, it's been, it's, it's bothered me since I've been at the History Center. So it's something that I would like to see change, and I hope that we can create a better narrative about Native American stories. Austin has a powwow every year, as you guys know, who are local to here, and so that's a great opportunity to meet other people from the community, but I feel like that's a story that I definitely shouldn't be the one, like, insert myself in. It would be better to have a volunteer from the community be there, and I can help train them and facilitate that process. But I think it'll be a more authentic experience coming from that person, especially from a community that's already so marginalized mm-hmm. and not visible, and um, you know, just just not listened to or not, and they haven't been included in our stories. Um, yeah,
0: the I think being able to reinterpret a lot of the narratives that already exist in our communities and society and the history uh, center archives, we um, really rely on a lot of volunteers to help with that, um, just because we can't be everywhere Mm -hmm. at the same time.
1: There's uh, a a good example of this um, is an exhibit we did, um, I guess it was maybe a couple years ago, was on the Civil War, and um, so we talked about slavery in the Civil War, and we talked about the the Confederacy and um, Union soldiers and just what the area was like, but we didn't include anything about Tejanos living in the area. They were not, like, not here.
7: So um, and so,
1: someone like, mentioned that to us, and we were like, "Oh man, like we really messed
0: up." So it was just I like wasn't, some... I wasn't part of this. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> this was after like luckily Amanda did not get there yet to yell at us too. But um, but it was like a mistake that the History Center made because we didn't include that voice. And this is also owning up to that, like, "Oh, we messed up." But the reason why we don't have this is because we don't have any collections about these groups. So you know, we we usually say, like turn it around and say that. So yeah, that's our fault. That's <laughs> our fault. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have any other questions? Or any like success stories or um, things that we didn't cover? Sure, I can actually. Let
2: me.
1: I told Amanda my dream was to be like Oprah
3: today. So I'm excited. Thank you. I feel weird standing. <laughs> Hi, um, my name is Brittany. And I work at not a community archive, but I do work at an archive um, where a lot of our collection is from like the 1700s when the Spanish first came to California. And a lot of it is about Native American groups and their stories, but from a European perspective. And that's sort of all we have. So I'm sort of looking for advice on how to reinterpret that when that's that's the only resource we have, and sort of in a community that really likes to celebrate the Spanish heritage, and that's that's it.
0: <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know, I guess I'm just gonna repeat myself, because I, I wouldn't, unless I have that historical knowledge myself, um, which we might be able to uncover some of that, but I would go to local universities, I would go to the local chapters of maybe, if there are tribal chapters around, um, I don't know. Those are kinds of the things that I would definitely do. Um, I there must still be local and people who have ancestry there. So those are the kinds of places that I would maybe look at that aren't necessarily like the first mm-hmm. places that you would look for. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like
1: Yeah, I know we have an, a volume in our collection called When Granddad Shot the Indians and it's like uh, a ro- yeah, yeah it literally is in our collection and it has um this romanticized like cowboy narrative of like the Comanche tribe and like the history and that's the only personal narrative that we have about the Comanche so if that was the only history it's just really like you like you said one-sided history so definitely going out to the groups seeing if there are any university students around any family members doing a lot of research I'm also a genealogy nerd so I do spend a lot of time if I have people who are missing from collections I usually kind of do like a finding people, like, I think it's because I'm naturally nosy. I think to be an archivist, you have to be nosy, right? Or a historian. What did they say? We like to open people's mail, That's our like thing. So, um, and I really feel like that's true. I can't tell you all the juicy like histories I've put together just from reading letters. I'm like, oh my gosh. So um, I think that that's definitely one way to um, be able to yeah. help solve that Make issue. Make it a student's capstone project or something. Definitely. She also
0: works
1: Oh, great.
3: I, I work at the archive with Brittany, but I also um, work with some people who I'm trying to collect from currently. Uh, but these people are 70 and 80-year-old men. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, on a uh, gender side, but also a, an age gap, do you have strategies um, that you use to collect materials from 70 and 80-year-old men?
0: you want to take that one? Sure. I mean, you yeah. work with... I think we both... Yeah. In our, I guess in all of our field, like where we work, we probably work with older folks most of the time. Um, I definitely do, it's little things. I dress a lot more conservatively. I find that that helps covering tattoos, those things like that I have to think about so as not to offend. Um, I definitely do that. I meet With men, I think that's harder. I tend never to, I don't know. I've never had a situation where I just meet with men. And if I do, if it's like that kind of, if there's uncomfortable... Um, tension there, then I would ask that they came to me versus me going to them, whereas, like, I automatically ask people, would they, would you like me to come to you? But if there's that tension, I tend to, I want to, like, at least set the boundaries if there are, if there need to be some. Um, But I haven't really had that come up. I don't know if you have.
1: I actually have, and so um, having older volunteers to come with you sometimes helps or someone that they can relate to. We have a lot of. volunteers who are, who are actually in that age demographic at the History Center, yeah. um, who are great volunteers who can come and kind of assist you and work with you. Sometimes you might have to deal with the fact that they might talk to the volunteer yeah. instead of you, yeah. but that's okay, you're collecting the history and that's a comfort level for them. And it's all about, at the end of the day, making sure that we have that story, no matter like you know what method you have to go through to get mm-hmm. it. So in those situations, I think- yeah, I guess, um, this might be from my deep Southern upbringing, I'm very respectful to my elders, I am. So that'll be a situation where I kind of like, you know, be seen and maybe not heard as much and let them kind of narrate and talk about that story just out of respect for them and not trying to dominate that narrative. Mm-hmm. Because I notice when I work with groups in my community, I just want to make sure I capture their stories. And sometimes, you know, millennials, we kind of like think we know everything and we're used to instant gratification with our iPhones and things like that. But letting them sit there and tell that story and not inserting ourselves into that narrative and kind of like, you know, being quiet and like, like Amanda said, being, Acceptable, like acceptable to like for their standards, you know. Yeah. Like <laughs> and listening, so that definitely helps.
0: Being prepared to stay there for... all day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially if they're retired too.
1: And also you can like um go to them as well. Like if maybe there's a senior center. I spend a lot of time at senior centers. Um, an activity center, so going to the centers and teaching classes is always fun. Usually we'll kind of bring pictures from different time periods, so if there's an anniversary, bringing that in and like letting them, um, and letting people kind of respond to it, that's fun. Mm -hmm. You can also, our Facebook group is still mainly comprised of men from that demographic, that age demographic. They're our Facebook followers, primarily. Mm -hmm. So one way, the library actually has a great program. We haven't instituted this at the History Center so much, but we're under the city of Austin, which is under the Austin Public Library, and then we're the Austin History Center, so it's like three umbrellas. But we have a social media ambassadors program, and so we have the public um, take control of the um, pages sometimes and be able to narrate stories that way as well. And that's also a cool activity where you can teach the seniors, if if they're familiar or not familiar with Facebook or different social media tools, teach them how to use the tools and also help them tell their stories. It's giving them extra skills, empowering them, and encouraging lifelong learning. (laughs) So that's always a good way to do that. And I also work with seniors. I have teenagers. I do a program where I have teenagers interview seniors. And so sometimes I'll have them go out and talk to the seniors and have someone younger go and have them do an exchange where they can share stories and learn about each other's lives. And usually I have the teenager ask the senior what it was like when they were their age, just to kind of see like what that time period was like. And that's always a fun activity. And I do that when we're talking about genealogy and different programs like that too, where you can interview people. It's always a lot of fun. And we've got... You're like, give
6: me the opportunity.
1: I was ready, I was ready. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Christy. I know. That's what we we have in the
5: middle for Stretch Armstrong. In the area of trust building, it, it strikes me that there is both personal trust building. Like you need to convince uh, folks that you know what you're talking about and you're reliable. There's also, um, the element that you're representing an organization that you first of all have to have trust in, Mm -hmm. that they're going to be good stewards of this information. And um, and also you're kind of speaking for the organization and, you know, offering reassurances. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that and specifically if um, you are, officially empowered as part of your job descriptions to look inward into your organization and um, advise them if, like, on policies that uh, involve outreach and um, may unintentionally alienate certain members of underrepresented communities or if that's a more informal um, aspect of the work that you need to do.
1: Well, to answer the last part of your question, that's the most difficult part. Sometimes it's like sitting at a table, like Amanda and I are like a, some of the only people of color that work at the History Center, so sometimes it's difficult, again, bearing that burden of speaking to the public. Um, like if we were gonna have a Civil War program, is it a great idea to sing, sing Dixie if you're inviting black gospel singers? Probably not. So just like, um, that's actually a conversation I did have to have one time. So um, just like explaining why that's not a good idea, and. Um, then it was kind of, that was a difficult situation because I had to provide all this data to support it. Instead of me just saying, this is not a good idea, I had to prove, like, prove why it was not a good idea. And it was um, kind of a difficult thing because it just wasn't valued at my word. And so that was one of those things too that we were talking about earlier. Just having us there is not enough. We're talking about inclusion and equity. Do we have um, an active voice in this, like, this whole narrative? Are we able to really speak to that? And that's the difficult part about our
0: job. Yeah. I'm- Yeah, sometimes we tend to be like the middleman between the community and the Austin History Center. And so I think that's a really challenging place for us because sometimes we don't necessarily, the organization itself, we have to do education on both sides sometimes. Um, Things that may seem obvious to us may not necessarily be obvious to some of the folks we work with. or to the community because maybe they don't understand why the Austin History Center does things a certain way. And so while we don't have any formal training in place, we do try to have conversations as much as our emotional capacity is able to uh, endure. Um, I think one thing that we're also trying to do as being part of the strategic uh, planning team is really try to take it to the top. And as soon as it starts being embedded in the organization as a whole, like that's when managers will start and department heads will start like to actually embrace that. And it's kind of hard for like us to do that while we're trying to like talk to our leaders to be like, hey, this we need to, everyone needs to have like unconscious bias training. And here's why, here are all these like scholarly articles, why um, we end up having to like prove that point a lot. But I think when the strategic planning, like the city of Austin, has never had a strategic plan. So that's kind of, Kind of tells you where we're at, like in terms of how we prioritize things. Um, so I think once equity sort of becomes embedded in all of our missions and values, then our organization as a, as a whole will like be able to really have that relationship with the community and not necessarily need someone who's like, well, you're the Latina community archivist, you're the African American community ar- archivist, you're the Asian American community archivist, whereas we'll all be archivists who can have that as like something at the front of our heads. What is that for? The forefront? Yes, the forefront. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> See, we're sharing a brain again. And I'm
1: sorry, you had an excellent first question and I don't think we answered it. Can you ask Not that? Trust. It was about yeah.
5: trust, right? Yeah.
1: Can you repeat that for me, please?
5: I do think you kind of got at it, but I'd be it. happy okay. to hear more. Um, I was wondering if um, if you all could Reflect on the task of um, representing an organization and kind of um, putting your trust in the organization, so that you can then turn to a wider community and say, you know, you trust us to be good stewards of your history. And if there, if you've been challenged by that, or if that was a really easy process, and then the other aspect of that was if you had, if your job description. Um, covered, you know, advocating within the organization for um, like sen- sensitivity to underrepresented communities. But I think you all answered that
3: part of it. So. The
1: part with the representing an organization that is difficult um, because we kind of are like the suits, like we kind of represent a corporate entity. And then one thing that the community sometimes does not know, but I do disclose this in the interest of transparency the city of Austin has these things called SSPRs, and it's like our quotas, things that we have to achieve. So as community archivists, we're actually supposed to bring in so many x amount of number of collections. We're supposed to meet this amount of people, like this many people. We're supposed to do this, and so at like we have a six month review and a one year review where we have to measure up. Did you do this? Did you bring in this many collections? So it's almost like being a salesperson in a way. So we're working with the communities, but we also have a quota um, that we're trying to achieve as well. And so that's the tricky part about our job. So with that, I try not to think about the SSPR and I put that in the back of my mind. And so usually I. But I, I can't go into that job, and, into it thinking about that because then it's not authentic. Because my job, I really care about making sure that we tell a great story, that we include everyone's perspectives. And so that's the part of my job that's really, I, th- I find it difficult. What do you think about the SSP? Do you
0: find it oh, I don't really think about the SSP but I think um, representing the the Austin History Center, I think a part of that is always just trying not to be defensive about it. Like acknowledging that, yeah, I know that we are a great resource and that, we have the materials and um, knowledge and skills to be able to help communities preserve their collections, but I just have to recognize that like, there, there's always gonna be immediate pushback. And so I just like kind of take it and I'm just like, yep, I know like, historically that we have not done a good job. Um, we're trying slowly to remedy that and to work with you to make that happen. But I think that's just sort of my opening introduction a lot of times is like, I know you haven't had a relationship with the History Center before, I might have an idea why, do you want to talk about it, like, I don't know.
1: And so we have six minutes left, so I've been, trying, I've been being the timekeeper today. But um, <laughs> yeah. we, have, we definitely want to take some last remarks and Amanda and I will be here afterwards too if we have any questions. yes.
5: Thank you.
2: Um,
1: I'm just
5: wondering if this is a problem in other areas of the country. Um, in Connecticut, uh, they don't teach the kids cursive handwriting in in school anymore, and that means very soon nobody's going to be able to read all these letters and diaries and other documents that we've been collecting from all these people. So is are they not teaching cursive in your states either? I'm, it, because sure. that, I'm, uh, things are gonna have to be transcribed or something, but yeah. I mean, it's better to read the original thing because that's where you get the emotion of, of what the people are trying to convey. So um, I'd be curious if that's an issue in your areas as well. you
4: have a response to that? I, Yeah, I just had an experience with this. Um, <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah, I just had an experience with this with an undergrad intern and um, he saw some cursive handwriting. I was having him look at some old um, records and type them into a spreadsheet, and and he panicked and he was like, "I can't. I don't know what that is." Oh. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, "Well, I mean, ta- l- let's check it out. Let's take a look at it and see." And I was like, "You know, you everything has been about musical instruments. So, what do you think that word is?" And he was like, uh, "Guitar." I was like, "Yeah." it's guitar you can do it you can recursive. you know like you just like I've had to learn how to read a lot of crazy stuff in my career uh old handwriting that isn't written like that anymore that they didn't teach me that in school either but um but I got excited about history in other ways and found myself in this profession and you know overcame that crippling obstacle but um so I think just people can do it we've got a comment we've got a comment I'm oh, sorry okay and then we're
1: gonna come this way
6: there you go. <laughs> um just dealing with this cursive issue. Um That's a big issue. <laughs> I was an intern a couple of summers ago and the Freedmen's Bureau records had just come out and they're all in cursive. Um and I'm sitting at a row with I was a grad student at, at the time, but I'm sitting on a row with like college students and other grad students and no one they were all like oh let's transcribe it it just came out and they all kind of sat there and they were like we can't we can't read this and so i'm wondering if because you know it's a conference full of historians um I still write in cursive, um, and it, it makes me feel good that like people can't read it because I journal in cursive, and so now I'm like, well, no one will be able to read this anyway. Um, but I'm starting to wonder, because I'm seeing this as a trend where students are no longer learning how to read or write cursive, if it's something that needs to be included as far as Archive. Well, I'm not an archivist. I was trained as um, a curator, so I have like a museum background. But I'm wondering if that's something that needs to be included as part of just our basic background because of the way our field is set up. You know, I'm I'm trained in museums, but I work technically. I work in archives and records. Um, so I'm wondering if maybe that's something that we should consider in the future as far as our education um, dealing with. Some of these documents that people won't be able to read in like twenty years. So. Doesn't also oh. experience the younger generation using their phone all the time, and sometimes they abbreviate their. It's like an Olympic torch. Yeah. I was just saying that now we're dealing with a younger gen- generation that's using their phone all the time, doing. Uh, acronyms or uh, shorthand that we may not understand as shorthand in a different generation. So we're gonna be experiencing that too on the other side. Um, And eventually that may end up in archives at some point. So that's another issue.
1: I know one thing we did do for our summer camp is teach calligraphy. So that's something that you can do as well to kind of
7: get them learning. Hi. Uh, So this isn't um, an experience directly at a place I work, but it's a place that I've been doing a lot of research. And they hosted a series where um, an expert on handwriting came in, and she was teaching people how to transcribe round hand and Spencer and Palmer and all these different methods, and helping people to identify so that when they're looking at, you know, microfilm records, and these might be records that were transcribed from an earlier era, they were transcribed in maybe the early 20th century, and now they're being digitized, and people are trying to, you know, translate all of this. And you know, if you look at handwriting from 200 years ago, it's very different than from 100 years ago, which is different from 50 years ago, which is different from now. And so I feel like if you can expand on that, those sorts of uh, symposiums and things would be really helpful. But also, um, I do living history, and many of my clients are homeschool groups and. All the homeschoolers that I meet always talk about the cursive issue. <laughs> and they always say, we are teaching our children cursive because the schools won't do it. <laughs> so I don't think all is lost. I think, I, I think there are ways. I think we just have to be very aware of it. And as you mentioned as well, I think that, that idea of the abbreviations, just like we have to remember that there's different vernacular at different times, I think those abbreviations are vernacular now. Is really what it's come down to. So.
1: It always cracks me up when people say like "LOL" instead of laughing. I don't know. It creeps
0: me out when I'm working when with they kids. Actually say yeah. it. Yeah, and i was like, "Oh,
1: LOL." I'm like, "Oh okay. <laughs> God." Um, but we want to thank you guys for coming out. And, Amanda and I mean, I'll be up here for a few minutes um, to answer any extra questions that are burning on your minds. And thank you all so much for coming to Race History
0: in the Archive. Thanks, you all. Um, if you would, if you would please.